from Philippians chapter number 3. I'm also going to be using next week because I think there's just so much packed into these first 11 verses of Philippians chapter number 3. I just can't expound it all in one's message. So uh, we're going to go to Philippians 3 this morning where Paul says to the church in Philippi, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Say that. Rejoice in the Lord. There's not a whole lot of things you can rejoice in these days, and at least in terms of the world that we live in, but you can always rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then Paul begins to give some very stern warnings, and, and the reason for which I think this particular part of this book of Philippians, this letter to the Philippian church, is so very important. He said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now understand, Paul is not conceited. He's not bragging here. He's just stating the facts. And then he gives us his qualifications for why he should have confidence in the flesh. If if that is indeed where his confidence was placed. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes <coughs> excuse me, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And then hear this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus we do lay our crowns at your feet, Jesus. Any titles, any, any rewards that we may have gained in this life, Lord, they're nothing in compared to the joy, in comparison to the joy of knowing you. And Lord, I thank you this morning for every person here. I know that no one in this room this morning is here by accident. We are here Because you have ordained that we be here today to receive what you have for us from your word. So anoint each of us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to receive what we have need of today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to have a little bit of fun with this this morning. It is football season. And, uh, you know, I look at football as kind of being a minor league sport. 
I'm already ready for baseball season again. But nevertheless, thank you, Irene. Nevertheless, I, uh, I think there's a lot about the game of football that we can use as an analogy to our spiritual lives. And so if you'll bear with me this morning, I'm going to be referring to different parts of the game of football in this message. And you'll notice here in just a few moments, I mean, I just read from Philippians chapter number three for you, but um, I'm going to be talking more today, at least, uh, about another passage of Scripture that we'll get to in a little bit out of the book of Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, because I believe it ties together. And then next Sunday, as I said earlier, I'll focus more specifically on the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippi- Philippian church here in chapter number 3. But moving on with the football, uh, depending upon where you lived in America on January 30th, 1994, It was either a great day or a very bittersweet one. Now, we happen to live in 1994 in Dallas, Texas. And so, uh, well, a suburb of Dallas, I guess I should say. But that date in 1994 was the day that the Dallas Cowboys rallied from a halftime deficit with 24 consecutive second-half points to defeat the Buffalo Bills for their second consecutive Super Bowl championship. Now, why is that so important? Well, if you lived in Texas like we did, it was the thrill of victory. But if you happen to be from Buffalo, New York, trust me when I tell you it was the agony of defeat again. Because they had made it to their fourth consecutive Super Bowl and experienced their fourth consecutive loss. The only team in the history of the NFL to have lost four Super Bowls, and to make it even worse, they lost them four in a row. So, you see, for people in Buffalo, that loss invoked all kinds of discouragement and complaining from their fans. Even some of the players were experiencing feelings of guilt from, ha- from believing that they had not played up to their full potential in that game, especially after they had dominated the first half and it looked like they were finally going to break their losing streak. But as is always the case, both of those teams, the Cowboys and the Bills, were playing on the same field in Atlanta, Georgia, the same field conditions had the same opportunity to win. However, only one team emerged victorious. Now, unfortunately, I believe that what was true of Super Bowl, uh, what is that? Super Bowl 28 is also true of the Christian life. As followers of Jesus, we're all following the same road. We all deal with the same conditions. Many of us have the same circumstances. But we travel this road of life through faith in Jesus, but not all of us are victorious. Now, I want you to understand something from the very get-go this morning. This is not so much a message about whether or not people are saved because I'm going to take, take a chance and just say that most of us in this room today 
have been saved. We have asked Jesus into our heart. He has forgiven us our sins. We are on our way to heaven. Thanks be to God. But I will say this. Even among those of us who are saved, not all of us live victorious, overcoming Christian lives. And it's for those of you that fall into that category that I want to focus my thoughts this morning because that it is the truth. Some Christians win the battle. They rejoice in their relationship with Jesus, even while getting bumped and bruised along the way. But they're still able to win victories, spiritual victories. On the other hand, there are other Christians who are equally bumped and bruised, but they fumble regularly. They fumble just like the Buffalo Bills did on that Super Sunday. And for those people, it seems that about the time they find some, some forward momentum in their walk with Christ, that some circumstances will come along and those circumstances gain the upper hand and they're forced to punt. How many of you have ever felt like, I'm just going to punt? <laughs> you see the similarities? From time to time, you might muster a big play or two. But the spiritual momentum needed to sustain a lifelong pursuit of holiness and spiritual victory just doesn't seem to be in the cards. And here's the thing, friends. You can go into your huddle, that is, church, every Sunday of your life and still not be a victorious Christian. You may know every game play in the book, that is, the Bible. But it's the blitz by the opposition that consistently throws you for a loss. You know, I've discovered in my own life that it almost seems from time to time like you score a touchdown, but then find out that the referee's whistle is already blown. You feel like you finally accomplished something, but everything else just does, is negated because... Whatever victory you've attained just doesn't seem to count. And you know, what I'm referring to is at those times when it seems like I've won a spiritual victory in my life, finding out that it doesn't count, it's the opposition, the other team, the devil. The devil that reaches out and somehow, figuratively speaking, intercepts the victory that I desire just as I've broken into the clear and seem to have an open road ahead of me to the end zone. Are you catching my football analogies? So many similarities. And this rather lengthy illustration that I've just shared with you is why I've chosen to give the title of this message today, The Thrill of Victory and the Agony of Defeat. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? There used to be a a program on Saturday afternoon on ABC every Saturday called The Wide World of Sports. And many of you will remember it. The thing that sticks out in my mind is that, that ski jumper. You remember this? That ski jumper skiing down the hill, and he gets off balance, and those skis start going everywhere, and that's when they mention the agony of defeat. But I believe that's also the lament of many Christians in the world in which we live. And the truth of the matter is, 
That's the way the devil, our opposition, wants us to feel. We see that truth in the life of a single mom, a single mom trapped in poverty, not knowing where to find the father of her child and the responsibility that he has to provide child support. We see it in the life of a teenage mom who realizes that the fun years of adolescence have passed her by and and as a result she begins to neglect her child in the effort of trying to stay involved with her single friends. We see it in the lives of those who cannot rise above their position of employment due to a lack of education and therefore can't qualify for a better job or provide for their family. And still in another realm of society, even the well-to-do will camouflage their, their pain a little better maybe than those who live at the lower end of the ladder of success. But they too are sources of this type of expression of grief because they look for meaning in a career. Others look to find their significance in relationships. Unfortunately, some look for meaning in the bottom of a bottle while others look for meaning in what they snort up their nose. And some, and I think these are the most miserable of all, finally give up and take the ultimate exit and take their life because they can't seem to find meaning anywhere whatsoever. Now again, Satan wants us to feel this way. The enemy of our soul, he's overjoyed when we feel confused, when we are frustrated, when we're defeated, because he doesn't want us to find any type of meaning in in, in our lives. Um, He works hard to set up what I call cardboard imitations. Uh, Cardboard imitations of life, and by that I mean the dishonest or immoral lifestyles that are available, the alcohol, the drugs for others. Uh, And and he's delighted when people are fooled into believing that those imitations can bring satisfaction. These imitations, these, these cardboard images or stage props, whatever you want to call them, they're designed to trip us up and make the going harder. And, and here's the other thing. If Satan can't trip us up with ungodly lifestyles, he'll try another method. He is crafty, by the way. Uh, he is, he's not that funny little red imp with horns that you sometimes see in cartoons In fact, Jesus knew his true nature, and he called him a murderer and the father of lies. He's nothing you want to mess with. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse number 10, he is the accuser of the brethren. In other words, he's the accuser of those of us who are of the family of God. He's constantly going before the throne of God saying, hey, did you know about Terry? Do you know what he's really like? He's accusing us and trying to trip us up. His business is to destroy us through every imaginable technique. For example, if money will lead a believer astray, he'll give him or her money or power. If a new job with a better salary will move God's child away from the will of God, he'll find a way to give him a new job with a better salary. But God has provided us with armor to withstand the attack of the enemy. 
And Satan, nevertheless, is, is going to try every trick in the book to find that hole in our armor. So no matter what his method, his goal is simple. And you know what it is? To keep believers like us from experiencing a victorious, joyful, abundant life. You've heard me say before, and I'll say it again, it gets kind of old, I know, but a Christian should never walk around acting like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. We ought to have the joy of the Lord. That's why Paul says in the very first words of this third chapter, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's saying that not because everything is hunky-dory in his life. After all, he's in chains in a Roman dungeon awaiting his death. Nevertheless, he says, rejoice in the Lord. He wants us to be overcomers just as he is overcoming. Now, here's the thing. The Word of God contains an entire book devoted to exploring the meaning of life. I mentioned it earlier. It's the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you'd like to turn to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, it's the one just following the Psalms and Proverbs. And interestingly enough, God chose to be the author of this book, Ecclesiastes, to be someone who would have instant and lasting respectability. King Solomon, the son of David, was the choice, and Ecclesiastes is the name of the book. Just by way of information, the book Ecclesiastes means the church. Now, I find that interesting because this book of Ecclesiastes doesn't begin like any other book I've ever read. In fact, if you look at verse number 1 of Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon says this, or excuse me, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, can I give you a definition of the word vanity? It means futility. What a way to begin a book about the meaning of life. Futility, futility, all is futility. You know, I remember back when I was doing my seminary studies, I took a class called expository preaching, which is the style of preaching that I believe to be the best kind of preaching there is. But I was always taught, and Ollie, I don't know if you were ever taught this or not, but I was always taught to begin a sermon with a compelling introduction that would capture the attention of the audience so that they'd want to hear more. Evidently, Solomon didn't take that class. Because he says, futility, futility. Everything is futility. But you don't want to stop there because this book gets better as you go. He's trying to find the meaning of life. And he uses this technique that is contrary to that principle that I learned. And he's telling his readers right up front that he has nothing to say because his lifelong pursuit of the meaning of life had left him with nothing but futility and emptiness. This book was written toward the end of Solomon's life. And as he looked back on his life, he asked the questions 
And these are the ones that I want you to keep in the back of your mind this morning as I share this word with you. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Three very important questions. And Solomon had come to the conclusion that his own life had produced nothing but emptiness and vanity or futility. Now, I believe that those are still questions that we may not be verbally asking, but we are all thinking in our minds. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Um, Book after book, if you've gone to a bookstore lately, lines the shelves of our bookstores, and article after article can be found on the internet giving potential answers to those questions. Matter of fact, uh, and not so much anymore, but I used to listen to a lot of music on the radio. And as I thought back on, on those days when I used to listen to the radio or, or have, uh, well, I was going to say cassettes or eight tracks, but most of the congregation don't even know what those are anymore. But, but would have music in, in my car that I would listen to from favorite groups. I thought of songs that really deal with those questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am, am I going? Uh, Rod Stewart. Any of you ever hear of Rod Stewart? He sang a song, Reason to Believe. George Harrison, one of the Beatles, sang a song called, What is Life? <laughs> For those of you even in the generation ahead of mine, there was a group called the Birds that sang turn, turn, turn. Gary remembers that. Do you know that the song turn, turn, turn is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, verses 1 through 8? I mean, think about it. Even more modern, modern songs. Bon Jovi's It's My Life. Not one of my favorite songs, but it's an example. It's an example of what I'm saying. People are looking for the meaning of their life. And in spite of living a life of great prestige, responsibility, and luxury, King Solomon gave the same answers to those questions as do those that I mentioned earlier. Much of life is empty. It has no meaning. Now, if King Solomon could say that life is meaningless, how about us? You know, he, can an unemployed father find meaning and joy and victory in his life when he can't support his family? It's difficult, isn't it? If, 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 can a successful two-income family avoid the pitfalls that can scar the rat race of life? Can... A sick elderly widow living on a fixed income experienced fullness of joy in life. Now, although Solomon's opening thoughts in this book of Ecclesiastes suggest a negative answer to those questions, again, don't stop there because in spite of its ominous beginning, the book of Ecclesiastes does have a positive message for us, no matter our age or our lifestyle. But here's the thing. King Solomon had tried All of the lifestyles. All of the lifestyles that were available to him in his day and age. He was the wealthiest man in the world. That afforded him opportunities that not everyone had. And in King Solomon's evaluation, he gives us what I see to be three major lifestyles. 
a life of pleasure, a life of knowledge or education, and a life of work. And in those three areas, King Solomon tried to find the meaning for his life. First, he tried a life of pleasure. He believed that if he could experience enough good times, he would have found a reason to live. Chapter 2, verse number 3 of Ecclesiastes. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during, during the few days of their life. His plan was to fill life with every pleasure possible. From the sounds of it, Solomon would have been right at home in our day and age. The only difference between his culture and ours is that he experienced, he experimented, I should say, with drunkenness. We now have uppers, downers, and all-arounders in the form of pills and powders and crystals to add to the list of, of substances to be abused. And, and just like the thrill-seekers of today, Solomon was looking for something to fill the holes in his life. But just as those today who are trying to find solutions to the meaning of life and, and things like drugs and sex and alcohol, those would-be solutions Solomon discovered only led to bigger problems. Uh, I kind of got sidetracked here as I was preparing this message because, as you might well imagine, back when I worked in the prison system, about 85% of the guys that I worked with, their road down the... Their, their path down the road of crime began with either alcohol or drugs. 85%. Easily 85%. And so I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, most of those guys that I worked with, they started experimenting with these things while they were children. It, it, this isn't just about those who have lived long enough to to experience deep discouragement and, and, and defeat. A lot of these things start when we're kids. And so I looked up some statistics. As of 2015, about 7.7 .7 young people between the ages of 12 and 20 reported that they have used alcohol beyond just taking a few sips within the month prior to the survey. It's estimated that approximately 11% of all the alcoholic beverages consumed in the United States are consumed by individuals between the ages of 12 and 20. Tragic statistic. In fact, those ought to be shocking statistics to every one of us. Solomon himself said in regard to his pursuit of a life of pleasure in verse chapter 2 of, of, of verse 2 of chapter 2, what use is it? What use is it? And so he then turns to another source uh, of pleasure, and that is getting as much stuff as he possibly could. All the material possessions. Being the wealthiest man in the world, he could have anything he wanted. And so he, sought, uh, he, he thought he would try to find meaning in having all the stuff. Have you ever looked forward to, to getting something special only to find out that when you get it, it isn't quite as cracked up as what you thought it would be. I think I experience that every time I purchase a new vehicle. I find that my eagerly anticipated purchase quickly diminishes its joy when the payment coupons come in the mail. 
Maybe you've looked forward to purchasing a new house, only to find that soon after you bought it, it's just another place to hang your hat. Your spouse may not be as exciting as perhaps they once were, or as you remember them being when you met. Things can tend to get boring pretty quickly. Solomon learned the truth of that experience. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planned planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Perhaps you noticed a key word that I read on eight occasions in those five short verses. Did you catch what it was? It's the word I. I, I, I. And then you move to verse number 10, and it, it, it sums up everything that Solomon said. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. I think what he's saying is, I didn't go to the party, I brought the party to me. Nothing stood in his way from having anything that he wanted. But there was a problem with the party. When it was over and all the activity had ceased, Solomon still realized it was all futility. Like striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to reach out and catch the wind? Anybody had any luck with that? We've had a lot of practice here in Kansas, by the way. It's an exercise in futility. Every time you think that you've grabbed it, it slips through your fingers. So Solomon quickly came to the understanding that pleasure is not going to give him the meaning of life, and he rejects that notion. So he turns to a pursuit of knowledge in verse number 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done? Now, how many, of you, how many of you would agree with me this morning that it's better to be smart than ignorant? Uh, some of you aren't raising your hands. That's concerning. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a parent, and I know a lot of other parents that have told their children, you, you, have to, you have to get a good college education to, in order to succeed in life. And, and, and many of us are, are still paying student loan debt because we told our kids that. Uh, but Solomon, he began the pursuit of becoming well-educated, full of knowledge. And he accomplished it. The Bible tells us that he was the wisest man that ever lived. Now, I just gave you two terms, knowledge and wisdom. Are they the same thing? No, they're not. The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing stuff. 
Wisdom is the unique ability to appropriately apply what you know to the human situation. That's what biblical wisdom is anyway. Did Solomon's education hit or its application give him a reason for living? Well, apparently not. It made him more miserable. Solomon realized that his fate was no different than that of the biggest fool in town. The misfortunes of illness and death could happen just as easily to him as it could to the most ignorant person around. And Solomon kind of had a PhD in world knowledge, but he found that it was no protection from, from illness or death. He decided that knowledge, too, was useless and empty when it comes to providing meaning to life. Now, let me just add a disclaimer because I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. In no way am I discouraging or discounting the importance of education. We all know that the chances of getting a, a good job without a good education are much more unlikely than for the uneducated. But I'm just pointing out that even with a good college education, particularly in 2019, doesn't guarantee you a great job out there in the workforce. I'm amazed when I think about my parents, my grandparents, and many of you who, who had godly, wise parents and grandparents. My dad had an eighth grade education. My mom quit school as a freshman in high school. My grandparents never moved beyond grade school. And yet, because of the common sense that they had, even with with very little educational training, they succeeded in life. And they had kids and grandkids like myself who have bachelor degrees and master's degrees and even doctorates. And they still don't know who, they're, who they are or why they're here or where they're going. Solomon still wasn't ready to give up on this search for the meaning of life. So next he decided he would fill his life up with work in order to fill this void in his life. He knew that work would give him a reason to get up every morning, keep him occupied, keep him challenged, keep him enthusiastic about living. So he turned his attention to work. Now, no one could have had a better position than that of Solomon. At that time, Solomon was the king of the greatest nation on the then known earth, Israel. And people from all over the world, King Solomon's world, came to talk with him. So you would think that his work must have given him real purpose in his life, right? Go down to verses 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be, a, be wise or a fool Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also, he said, is vanity. Um, let me give you my translation of those two verses. Solomon is saying, you know what? I'm, I'm breaking my neck 
to build up the nation of Israel. And when I die, someone else is going to take my place. And I I don't know if it's going to be someone that I approve of or someone who is going to live up to my standards or if he'll be in agreement with the way I've done things. But he's going to take my place. And even worse, he's going to get handed to him for free all that I have worked hard for a lifetime to build. I got to thinking about that. That really hit me hard. Matter of fact, Brenda, it kind of reminded me of a guy that left the farm back in 1992 to go into the ministry. And and I share in Solomon's disillusionment more than just on who would be minding the farm once I left. It's beyond who took over the farm and what they did with it and how good a job they did when I left. I got to thinking about it in terms of the relationship that Brenda and I have. There have been times when I thought to myself, you know what, if I would die today, I hope Brenda would grieve for a little while anyway. But what about when the grieving lessens? I mean, if I were to die today, I don't want Brenda to live alone for the rest of her life because she's still beautiful and she's wonderful and And what if Brenda marries someone else? Wow, that really hit me. And it's okay if she does. I I mean, I, I want her not to be alone. But there's something about that thought that really bothers me. The man that she might marry might move into my house without paying a dime for it. He might drive my car. He might even wear some of my clothes if he's small enough. He'd, he'd, he'd receive those things for free because I wouldn't be around anymore. He might even get the affection of my boxers, which was mine before he ever came along. I'm not talking about the shorts. I just want to clarify that. (laughs) That just hit me. That just hit me. I thought I better clarify that. Dogs, four-legged boxers. (laughs) Woo. But anyway, he'd receive all of those things for free and I wouldn't be around anymore. And that's a bitter thought for me to chew on if all that I've worked for gives life its meaning to someone else. That's what Solomon is really saying here. He felt this irony even more than me because he had built and ruled an entire late nation and that's what leads Solomon to write the lines that have become so well known even among the non-Christian community in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He comes to this conclusion. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. 
A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. You know, you and I can make contributions to life. But the fact is, we already live in a system that has been laid out or planned, and it functions as if it's unchangeable because each of us, hate to bear the bad news to you this morning, friends, but if Jesus delays his coming, every one of us are going to die. That's the plan that's been laid out. That's what each one of us have in front of us, and nothing's going to change that, change that. So we are locked in by death as well as life and by misery as well as happiness. We're all going to experience those things. But then Solomon concludes his thoughts on work as giving meaning to life with the words of verse number 9. He says there, What gain has the worker from his toil? Why work if God's already got our lives scheduled and planned out? So Solomon concluded that work wasn't the answer to his questions either. Those questions, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? But here's the most important verse in the book. He finally gets his answers in verse number 11 of chapter 3. He says, he, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God placing eternity into the hearts of mankind is the answer. That is what gives life purpose. That is what gives life meaning. Knowing that the few short years that we live here in this life will determine what forever holds. Did you catch that? The few short years that we live in this life, and and we are told, and in most cases, the Bible says you're allotted three score and ten or 70 years. Obviously, some less, some more. But in terms of eternity, just a speck of dust. And he says, here's what God has done. He's placed eternity into our hearts. We have to live with eternity's values in mind and live our lives in such a way that when we breathe our last or when Jesus comes in the clouds of his, of his return, that our, retur- our eternity will be as planned as what our earthly life has been. Are you with me? It simply means that God has placed this big question mark Deep into every person's soul. And yes, we should be asking 
for the meaning of life. God intended it that way, but there is nothing in our life as we know it that can provide the answer to those questions. Many of us, though, seem to have lost sight of the fact that life and its labor are from God. God gives it all. We come to believe that we've earned those things. No. God gave them to us. We get up every morning, we tell ourselves, this is my agenda for today. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. And then what happens? We get irritated and aggravated. Maybe even angry when, those, when things interrupt those plans. Have we not forgotten that our life is not our own? In fact, that's the teaching of Scripture. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a great price. And the only thing that can bring meaning and purpose to your life is to serve the one who has purchased your life on a cross. It's the only thing. Because that's going to plan your future. Beyond this life into the next one. The plans, the timing, the assignments, those are things that God gives to us. And it's for this precise reason that the Apostle James gives us the words of James chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where he says, Yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? We belong to God. Our lives are His, and it is His work that we have been assigned to do. The plans, the timing, and the assignments are his to give us. Instead, you ought to say, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's warning us against the setting of our own agendas. It's an exhortation to plan our lives in a new way, God's way. So if you want purpose in life, if you want meaning instead of emptiness and futility, if you want victory instead of defeat, joy in the place of sorrow or depression, prioritize God and his plans for your life. If God isn't your priority... Your life will end up being just as Solomon described in Ecclesiastes, full of futility and emptiness. Pleasure, education, a job, designer clothes, an expensive sports car, a crowd of friends will never give meaning to life. Those are just fillers. They're not substance. Jesus told us in John chapter 12, verse number 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains, al- it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Only when you and I die to ourselves, that is, forget about ourselves, and start living for Jesus, are we going to find a victorious, overcoming, abundant life, filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So we all choose each day between the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. Now let me just quickly say as I close, my entire purpose in this message this morning 
the reason I changed this particular message so much from the original one that I did 25 years ago is because in the last 25 years I've had a lot of experience as a pastor. And, and I see many believers who move from one problem to the next perpetually living in the agony of defeat. And, and I too have had to deal with some lost yardage, football analogy again. I've had to deal with some lost yardage, spiritually speaking. But I've also noticed that there are believers who face some of the same headaches, some of the same heartaches that I face, face the same joys, the same sorrows that I face, only they seem to find ways to make the opposition fumble the ball and come up with the plays that are necessary to win. What's the difference between the two? Those who are victorious and those who aren't? Those who are victorious don't allow the opposition to throw them off their game plan. The game plan is the one given to us by God. And if we get thrown off of that plan, we're going to experience we're going to experience some turnovers. They you know, people prepare hard for for life. They study the tactics of the enemy. They focus in, uh, intently on executing the plan of God even when they're in conflict. But believers who get defeated, they allow their circumstances to determine their strategy. And the opposition then beats them mercilessly until they're no longer able to fight back. And just to continue with my football analogies a bit more, any expert on the game of football will rarely ignore two important things in every football game. You know what they are? Time of possession and number of turnovers. Now, why do I say that? Because the team that keeps the ball longest usually wins the game, and the team with the most turnovers usually loses the game. And the same thing is true in our spiritual walk. If we are to be victorious, we have to keep Satan on the defense, not on the offense. We have to cease from turning our lives over to his ways instead of God's ways. If we know from experience what it means to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, then we need to seriously accept our responsibility to remain faithful to the plan of God in his playbook the Word of God. Basic instruction before leaving earth. That's the acrostic of the Bible. You stick to those instructions, you're going to live victoriously. Then and only then will you courageously prevent the enemy's tactics from governing your life. Worship team, would you come please? My hope this morning is that if you are a frustrated believer and you've been experiencing frustration and futility in trying to live an overcoming life, that the words that I've shared with you this morning will enable you to reverse negative spiritual momentum through getting consistent and progressive first downs in your life. See, friends, here's the deal. It doesn't matter how lopsided the score may currently be. If you can mount a proper defense and keep scoring yourself, you're going to change the outcome of the game.
I also hope that there are those of you who are already victorious. Let me just encourage you, maintain your momentum. Momentum's a huge thing. Because our adversary, the devil, is looking for any and every opportunity to reverse our momentum. And in doing so, he can reverse the outcome of our lives. These suggestions that the Word of God has given us and that I've tried to expound upon this morning, they're not mine. They come from the one that I consider to be my greatest mentor other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and his name is the Apostle Paul. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, Paul wanted, one of, his, one of Paul's main themes throughout all of his writings was to see believers like you and I grow into spiritual maturity. In other words, eventually get off the milk as a baby is dependent upon milk to survive. Get off the milk of the Word and move to the meat of the Word. In other words, grow up. Grow in Christ. Become more and more like Him. You know, the Christians in, <laughs> the Christians in Paul's day, they may have worn long robes and sandals rather than skinny jeans and running shoes. They tended sheep rather than surfing the web. But their thoughts, their feelings, their problems, and their sins... They're not a whole lot different than yours and mine. Not a whole lot different. And that's why Paul, his advice here in this great letter to the Philippian church is so vital. Jesus has saved us to be victorious. He has saved us to be joyous. He has saved us to be overcoming Christians. And we should never, ever, ever, ever be satisfied with anything less other than fullness of joy. Amen? If you agree with that, stand to your feet. We're going to sing this song again because I believe, and this is my last analogy, I believe it's time that we move downfield in order to experience the thrill of victory. Amen? Jacob, sing it for us, would you please? Heaven's angels all around Mighty light has found in knowing That you wear the victor's crown You're my help and my defender By your...